Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word tonight, we thank you, Lord, for the fact that you reveal yourself to us so clearly through your word. That, Father, we can mind the depths of your word and yet never come to a full understanding of who you are. And yet, Lord, we're reminded that though we are inadequate in knowing you, Father, what we do know about you is true and it is enough. So, Father, as we now come before you and as we study your character and how it applies to prayer, we ask that you would help us to understand your word better, that you would search the depth of our hearts and that you would help us to relate to you more personally and more intimately because you are a personal and intimate God. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Hello, Praxis. It's good for me to be with you all. Um, like most of you, I wish that I could be there with you, but for obvious reasons, I can't be there, and so this will have to do. I just introduced myself to you. My name is Matt Powell. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lighthouse, and I oversee small groups and discipleship here at this church. Um, my, my wife's name is Lisa. Uh, we've been married for about four years now, and we have a one and eight month old, one year and eight month old daughter named Harper, and another one scheduled for May nineteenth. So you can be praying up, pray for us for that. As you can tell, I'm speaking from the comforts of my own home. This is actually the guest room in which I'm speaking from. So you get a little taste of what our what our home looks like. Well, at least this corner here. With that being said, Chris asked me if I could speak on the topic of things I wish I had known and specifically on the topic of honest prayer and drawing closer to God. And in many ways, working on this was personal for me because I think it was around my first year of seminary as a postgrad that prayer became an integral and significant part of my life. I'm not sure if Chris had to take this class, but back in 2009, I had to take a class on prayer that required me to pray an hour straight every single day. It was also around this time that I really learned how to pray. Up until then, prayer was a theological exercise. It was heartless muttering at worst. It felt cold and insincere. Sure, I was disciplined in prayer. And while I knew that I was speaking to the God of the universe, it never really seemed that way. It never felt, I never felt free to, to speak to God the way I would if I were to speak to a close friend, to speak my mind, to be honest with my thoughts and how I was really doing, thinking that by being too honest, I was being too sinful. It seemed that whenever I prayed to God, I had to somehow qualify each of my words, yet would never do that with those that I'm closest to. Maybe I can give you some understanding of what I mean by this. It was during my first year in seminary that I had just broken up with my college girlfriend. And I'll speak the details, but after a series of events, I found myself really hurting during, during this period of time. I thought that at the time, the best way to deal with that hurt was simply to deal was simply to think more about Jesus dying on the cross for my sins and to remind myself that I really deserved nothing. In an effort to somehow dull the pain, I would often pray things like, "God, I thank you that I'm that though, that what I'm what I'm now going through is still infinitely better than what my sins deserve." Even if I dared to touch on the subject of my personal hurt, I would often qualify it like this, "God, even though I hurt my hurt pales in comparison to the suffering that so many people go through for your name's sake and ultimately to what Christ had to go through on the cross. So help me not to be self-centered. And while these truths were good scriptural truths, I found that my prayers were often doctrine rehearsal at best and worse that my interactions with God were impersonal. I remind myself all that I had learned about God 
by never actually being with God himself, never actually trusting him. I wonder how many of you can relate. Now, like I said, these truths are good. And there is a sense that in a grand scheme of things, a breakup is really just a drop in the bucket of eternity. And oftentimes, when we consider who God is, we might be tempted to consider that our prayers and our desires, for lack of a better term, just simply aren't worth his time. But there is also a sense in which if we believe God that God is who he says he is, that he's sovereign, that he's wise and good and loving, all-knowing, all-present, etc., then these seemingly inconsequential events in our lives have lives have more care than we care to admit. More to the point, rather than being the means by which we qualify our prayers or, or keep us from really sharing what is on our hearts, these truths about God should actually free us to be more honest, more real and raw in our prayers. Truths about who God are give us freedom to actually be with God and relate with Him as we are. Helpless people, crushed by the weight of our sin and the suffering of our lives who need above all his very self for comfort and not who we think we should be. Tonight we find ourselves looking to Psalm 139 and I think most of us are familiar with this psalm. In fact, I'd venture to say that you've probably heard verses 13 through 16 quoted to you before. Overall, this psalm really isn't that hard to understand. It's, it's a psalm that speaks about the character of God and neatly divides into four ideas about him. God's omniscience in verses 1 through 6, God's omnipresence in verses 7 through 12, God's creatorship in verses 13 through 18, and God's holiness in verses 19 through 24. But while this psalm teaches us um, so much about who God is, it is more than just a theological primer. But as one commentator writes, it uses the theological ideas to form a powerful message for those who trust in the sovereign Lord God. It is applied theology and so always relevant. And we see this even in the psalm itself. While the occasion of the psalm is debated, verses 19 through 22 give us some clue behind its composition. The psalmist David has encountered some measure of real wrong and hurt. And through it, we see his needs, legitimate needs and desires at that. In the context of hurt and hostility, David finds comfort in the person of God. Again, it is more than just theology. It is applied theology. So while Psalm 139 is not necessarily about prayer, I think in many ways it is helpful for us to consider this because the truths of Psalm 139 make prayer not just possible, but real and helpful. We draw all the more closer to God as a result. This is what it says. Follow along with me in your Bibles and look at Psalm 139. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in and you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall, shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and, the, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. Even the night, is as, the night is bright as a day, for darkness is as light with you. 
for you formed my inner parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in, in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your books, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there, if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This brings us to our key idea. Because God is completely and intimately involved with us, we are freed to be completely and intimately honest with him in our prayers. I hope this helps you to draw all the more closer to God in your prayers. My hope is that you will be all the more free to approach him with refreshing honesty as a way of resting in him. Now, like I said, it neatly divides up into four ideas. And the first is this. God's knowledge means I can speak honestly. The psalm begins in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now, when you think of someone knowing you, this might not necessarily be the most comforting thing in the world. In fact, depending on the context, this could be at best creepy or perhaps even scary. Especially as you read throughout this psalm, we come across a number of well-known literary devices in biblical poetry known as mirrorisms. And mirrorisms are basically two contrasting ideas linked together in order to express a totality or an entirety. So phrases like from A to Z or black and white and everything in between, right? These are all used to, about, the to, about the totality of something. In other words, nothing is left untouched. And as we read through this text, this idea is emphasized. In verse 2, we see it sit down and rise up. Verse 3, my path lying down, my, my path in lying ways. Verse 5, behind and before. Verse 7, go and flee. Verses 8, Heaven, shield, ascend and make my bed. Verse 9, the morning and uttermost parts of the sea. Verse 11, darkness, light. And verse 12, night and day. And again, that actually might not be the most comforting thing in the world. In fact, I think for most of you ladies, if a guy went up to you and, and, and said, I know when you rise or when you sleep and when you eat, when you drink, I doubt that would be the most, I doubt that would be a successful pickup line. If anything, it'd probably be an, an admission of guilt to their creepy stalker selves. In fact, for David, the fact that he is known by God like this is off-putting, even frightening. He says in verse 5, You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. The idea is that in light of God's overwhelming knowledge of who he is, David feels cornered. He feels trapped. And this makes sense. If God knows us to the extent that he does, knowing when we sit down or rise, knowing our paths and lying ways, being thoroughly acquainted with our ways, and even knowing us before we could even speak, this in many ways should frighten us because it means that he knows even the sins and thoughts that we are often so ashamed of and try desperately to bury deep. The worst of us that we often wish would never be brought into the light 
God knows. And if that were not enough, verse 2 tells us that he knows more than just what we try to hide, but that he knows our heart and every intention. He says he's, he's acquainted with all my ways. Our hearts, which are hidden to others, are laid bare before God, and he sees every sinful act and thought. And before this knowledge of God, we have all, all the reason to be afraid. Because it means that he has more than enough evidence to condemn us based upon what he already knows of us. But what makes this full and pervasive knowledge of God, what will make this text a comfort later on and not a threat, is this one truth. That the God whom David speaks of is a personal one. One whom David does not simply live under, but is brought into a relationship with. He addresses God with this name in verse 1, O Lord. Now, why is this so significant for us? Because in our English Bibles, you have noticed that the word Lord is written in all capital letters. <clears throat> and what this refers to is more than just God as mighty deity, but it refers to God's personal name revealed to his personal people whom he has personally chosen, loved, and saved. It not only speaks of his intimate and close relationship with his people, but it speaks to his protecting presence and act of concern for his people. Let that settle. Do you realize that God knows you? Like he really knows you. He knows your sin and the worst part of you. And he even knows the slightest thoughts that you have towards sin, even before the idea was ever formed in your mind. And while this is scary, consider that the same God also has bought you, not with the blood of sacrificial lambs, but with the blood of the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. He has redeemed and saved you to be his own so that God might be more than just a God to you, but a father to you. If that is the case, think about what that means. God knows everything about you. He knows the best of you. He knows the worst of you. And yet... This does not change his love for you one bit. Yet oftentimes when we pray, we, we speak to God as those trying to put our best foot forward. We speak to God hiding the thoughts and intentions and desires that we judge to be too fleshly at best or too sinful at worst. As if by not articulating them, our prayers stand a better chance of reaching God's ears. We do this either by trying to overqualify our words not bringing them up, thinly hiding, or immediately turning anything that we deem to be too fleshly of a request into a confession. Now, as a caveat, keep in mind that there are times where confession is necessary, as we'll see toward the end of our study. And understand that there is a difference between expecting, even demanding, sinful or selfish requests. But what I'm simply pointing out is this. God already knows every intention of our hearts, whether good or bad. Why do we pray as if he doesn't? You see, the fact that God knows everything about us shouldn't cause us to be shy about what is on our hearts, nor should it cause us to be hesitant over what burdens us. But the very opposite. It encourages and frees us to be incredibly honest and candid with what is weighing most on us, knowing that Jesus has died for every wrong request that we could make and every right request we make as well. Paul Miller puts it this way in his book, A Praying Life. Your heart could be, and often is, askew. You have to begin with what is real. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for the sinners. All of us qualify. 
The very thing we try to get rid of, our wariness, our distractedness, our messiness, are what get us in the front door. That's how the gospel works. That's how prayer works. So what burdens you tonight? What is the thing that weighs most on your heart? What is most important to you, even if you might not think it is? What is the one thing you want to say more than anything else, even if you're unsure of how good or bad that might be? Our Father knows it all already, the best and worst, so you are encouraged to speak honestly about it. You are encouraged to lay every burden on Him because He already took on the infinite burden of your sin, so there's nothing that will surprise Him. So start there in your prayers. We have to move on, but our second idea is found in verses 7 through 12, and it's this. God's presence means I can rest in His compassion. Knowing that God knows everything about him, David comes to this conclusion. There is nowhere that he could possibly go in which God will not find him. Whether in spiritual realms inaccessible to mortals in, verses, in verse 8, or the height of the sun rising the ocean to the place in the ocean where the sunlight does not reach in verse 9, there is nowhere too deep, no place too dark where God cannot find David according to verses 11 through 12. But it's not simply that God is able to find David. In verse 7, he says specifically this, Where shall I go from your spirit? And it's significant that we note this because in the Bible, God's spirit expresses his immediate divine presence in the world. We see this in the Old Testament as early as Genesis 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 2, that in a formless and void universe, God's presence was already present via the spirit. And we see this even in the New Testament. That when Jesus ascended into heaven physically, he was still present with his disciples and with us by way of the Holy Spirit. So here David is not just talking about the fact that there is no place that David can hide, but he's saying even more specifically that there is no place where God is not already present. That's why he says in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I, where shall I flee from your presence? Now, like I said earlier, depending on the context, this could be a scary thing. In fact, as you go through Psalm 139, there seems to be this progression where David, frightful of the fact that God knows everything about him, seeks to flee from God's presence in verses 7 and take cover in the darkness in verses 11 through 12. I mean, much like Adam and Eve who attempts to hide from God among the trees in the garden in Genesis 3.8, everywhere David goes, God's presence is there. But it's not there to simply meet him. We find that God's presence has always been with David. We read in verses 9 through 10, that if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and surely and your right hand shall hold me. What's being conveyed here in verse 10 is this picture of God who has step by step been leading his people safely through dangers and difficulties and triumphantly to a desire and promised destiny. Upon crossing the Red Sea, Moses sings this in, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 13. You have led in your, in your steadfast love the people whom you redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. It is here that this psalm begins to turn and here that, David, that God no longer becomes a threat to David but a comfort in which David finds rest in. Consider that for a moment. Do you realize that wherever you are at in life, God himself is there? That he's not detached from your struggle, whether in sin or in suffering? That he does not remove himself away from us? 
If he is with us in our struggles and sin, then his presence means two things for us. The first is this, his presence means he's sympathetic to us. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Whatever it is that you are going through, whatever struggles you are going through, or even temptations that you're wrestling with, Jesus willingly listens and he understands. And think about why that matters. Because it frees us to speak to him with anything that is on our hearts without fear that he'll somehow turn our words against us, no matter what they may be. Like a sobbing child who runs to their parent, although our tears might not make any sense, although our tears might be like the most trivial things in the world, we can come to God and rest in the comfort of his presence and sympathy. So pray to him. Speak to him. Speak about what is on your heart you'll find that he will not use our words against us and chide us. In fact, you'll find the opposite to be true. As you open yourself honestly to Jesus, friend of sinners, you'll find that what one man said to be true of him, that to open one's heart to one's friend, it doubles our joy and cuts our griefs in half. That's not to say that our hurt will go away. But there's something comforting about sharing our hurts with someone who truly loves us that helps to soothe and lift the pain, even if just for a moment. It reminds us that though we hurt, we do not hurt alone. So pray to God. Rest in his compassion and sympathy toward you and speak with honesty. But it also means this. His presence means he is patient with us. Psalm 103 verse 8, one of the most often repeated choruses in scripture is this, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If God is willing to remain with us in spite of our sin, it is because he is patient. God's patience and long suffering with us because growth in Christ likeness and in suffering is meant to be taken one step at a time. There are no shortcuts. But praise God that he does not demand that we change immediately. Praise God that he's abundantly patient toward us. And this matters because it means that we can pray and express the things that are on our heart and rest in God's compassionate patience toward us, even if what we pray for is less than perfect. In doing so, we are not saying that we are content with where we are. But what we are saying is this. We are resting in and entrusting ourselves imperfection, sin and all, into God's timing for our lives. Paul Miller, again, puts it like this in his book. In bringing your real self to Jesus, you give him the opportunity to work on the real you and you will slowly change. The kingdom will come. You'll, be, you'll end up less selfish. The kingdom comes when Jesus becomes king of your life, but it has to be your life. You can't create a kingdom that doesn't exist where you try to be better than you really are. But what does that practically look like? Well, I find it helpful in my own prayers to simply say these words at the end. I know I'm not where I need to be. So God, help me. Going back to my opening illustration, I remember certain times the pain was so much, much more acute than other days. But I think the pain was most difficult when I found out that she and a friend of mine got together only three weeks after our breakup. And as much as I tried to 
pray away the pain, that pain only turned into intense anger. Anger at God, anger at those two. At which point I was so overwhelmed that all I could do was pray, God, I hate that I have to be the one who gets the short end of the stick. I hate that I have to be the one who has to be Christ-like in love toward them while hurting. And honestly, I hate them. I don't want the best for them. But God, help me. I know I'm not where I need to be. So God, help me. Simple as I was, God was patient. And it was in his patience that God began to expose the depth of my sin and idolatry. Was I, convict, was I quickly convicted and changed? Honestly, no. But, but God was patient. And the fact that he was with me freed me to open my heart to him in honesty with the hope that he, that he would change whatever needs to be changed, even if I didn't know what that was or how long that would take. I drew all the more closer to God because in his patience, he bears my burdens. He bears my complaints. As the friend that he is, he bore all of that with an open ear and a patient spirit. So beloved, what burdens you this evening? You have a God who promises to always be with you through the good and the bad. You can therefore rest in his presence and speak with honesty to, who, uh, speak with honesty to him who has a compassionate ear toward you. So speak, cry out to him because he deeply cares for your burdens and lean on his presence. Knowing this then brings us to this next idea. God's creative wisdom means I can request freely. Knowing that God knows everything about David and knowing that God has always been with David and will be with David, David comes to this stunning truth. God was with them even in, the crea- in his creation. We read in verses 13 through 15 that God created every part of David from the physical to the spiritual. But more than just create David, as if he was just another product off the assembly line, David emphasizes God's intentional and thoughtful creation of him when he was nothing but an idea. We see this in verses 17 through 18, when David speaks about the preciousness of God's thoughts in creating him. God, in other words, poured his infinite wisdom into considering every single part of us, yet not just to our lives, or not, not, just our, not, not just to our body or our soul, but our very lives. Verse 16 says this, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And consider that. God wisely and sovereignly planned more than just the development of our bodies, but every day afterwards. From, from, from the day that we would take our first step to the exact moment in which we would see our need from Jesus, to our first crush, to the exact moment and time and place and method in which we would die, from the monumental to the mundane, every step of our lives was wisely crafted and superintended by the wisdom of our God. Do you know what this means? It means that there are no accidents or slip-ups. His wisdom, as Wayne Grudem defines, means that he not only chooses the best ends, but he chooses the best means to those ends. He wisely crafted our lives in such a way that in a million possible universes, this very circumstance that you find yourself in today, this is the place that God wants you because it is the best means towards the best end. 
or he would have chosen something different. And why does this matter? Because it means that nothing we go through is considered too trivial for God. None of our circumstances and none of the small things that burn us are too small. And yet we often treat them like they are. We, we treat certain prayer requests too trivial or a prayer request as too small or simply not worth God's time. But, but how can, can they be if the very circumstances we pray for were the product of God's infinite wisdom and thoughtfulness? If God poured his infinite wisdom and thoughtfulness into this thing in your life, how could they be considered trivial? See, if we understand that the burdens that we carry were ordained by God before we were even formed, that his infinite wisdom was poured into the exact thing weighing your heart down this moment, then we would be all the more encouraged encouraged to ask freely. There is no request too minor, too small, or too minute. God has sovereignly and wisely placed you in that position to pray about it. So what are the things that weigh heaviest on your heart? What are the things that you are too afraid to ask God for? You are encouraged to ask God freely because in his wise providence over your life, no request is neither too big or too small. So ask freely. Now, having said that, we need to be careful because like I said earlier, there is a difference between expecting and demanding versus requesting. One puts our desires above God and the other humbly recognizes our prayers for what they are. Requests that are held at the mercy of God. But beloved, that is not a bad thing. Remember, God is wise. He knows every exactly what we need, even if it's not exactly what we think we need. And he will always answer according to what is best. Romans 8.26, I think, helps us to navigate that tension. It's one of my favorite verses in scripture about prayer. But this is what it says. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. For the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Did you get that? What is Romans 8.26 saying? It's saying that even when sin has so frustrated our prayer lives that what we pray for is not what God would pray for if he were in our shoes, the Spirit graciously intercedes on our behalf and requests not what we want, but what we need. Not what we think is good in our eyes, but what God knows is better in his eyes. So what this means is simple. I can come before God and freely request what is on my heart, not expecting God to bend his will to my desires, but because I know God will give me a far better answer than I could ever dream for, hope for, and pray for. When we recognize prayer in that light, requests and not demands, that God will answer according to what he wisely determines is better, then this encourages me to ask freely. So what is on your heart tonight? What are the requests that you so badly want to come to God for, but you're too afraid to ask? God invites you to ask freely. God's wisdom gives you freedom to ask without qualification because in God's wisdom, he will always give a far better answer than we could ever dream for, hope for, or pray for. This brings us to our last point. God's holiness means I can seek righteousness. 19 through 24. Now, as we come to this section, in many ways, this seems pretty much out of place. Besides possibly giving us the context for the, the psalm, why else would these words be here? But when we consider these verses in light of the entirety of the psalm, it makes sense why this would be here. 
because you cannot experience the closeness of God in knowledge, presence, or wisdom without experiencing the closeness of, God's, of God in holiness. His characteristics are not divorced from one another. Because we don't experience simply God's characteristics, we, ex we experience God himself in his totality. Again, as we saw earlier, to be known by God was a frightening prospect. And this is also significant for us because it speaks to this reality, that God's holiness means we can seek righteousness in our prayers in both the external and the internal. What do I mean by this? Well, the text, I think, I think gives us two ideas. The first is this. We can name wrongs rightly. In verses 19 through 22, we come across what is known as the imprecatory words, words which are written to invoke judgment, calamity, or curses upon God's enemies. And at first glance, as we, as we read through this, this might seem ungracious or, or cruel. I mean, is it right for us to ask God to slay the wicked, as in verse 19? Is it okay for us to say, I hate those who hate you, O Lord, and loathe them, as in verse 21? Is it, is it really okay for us to say that we hate them with complete hatred, as in verse 22, especially when in the New Testament, Jesus commands us to love our enemies in Matthew 6, 44? Well, we need to understand that throughout the Psalms, when we come across these imprecatory words, the psalmists are never interested in their own personal vindication or revenge, but rather they're more, he's, they're more concerned with God's kingdom and anyone or anything that seeks to wage war against it. In other words, what the words of imprecation throughout the Psalms teach us is that when we seek to love God and adopt his kingdom as our own, it necessarily means that we hate anything which is antithetical to it. Just as it is right to hate anything which seeks to harm my wife, it is right for us to hate sin, death, and the subsequent wrongs and suffering which seek to diminish and destroy God's kingdom. That's why Satan and death is called the last enemy. So what does this mean for prayer? means this, that in our prayers, we can name wrongs rightly. Granted, we ought to be careful with what we determine is wrong. Wrong is ultimately defined in relation to God's kingdom and not our own. But with that qualifier, we can name the wrongs in our life and, and freely bring it before God and ask God to act accordingly. And think about why this even matters, right? For, for us who are suffering, do you realize that it is okay it is okay, even right, for you to pray against the suffering and evil that presses against you. I think the tendency of our hearts is to believe that if we pray against the suffering of the hurts or the hurts caused by sin in our lives, that we're somehow being selfish or too fleshly. While it is true that we can and should trust God in the midst of suffering, trusting God doesn't always have to mean learning to live faithfully with the suffering. But it also means entrusting God to right the wrongs in our lives because he cares so deeply about those things. I mean, history is moving to a time when, 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 when that's going to happen anyways. The reality that was inaugurated when Jesus came to heal the sick and cast out demons, to right the wrongs of sin. As believers then, it is right and good for us to name what is wrong and to pray for God's deliverance. So ask yourself this, can you name the wrongs in your life? Have you? Again, not wrongs according to your view, but wrongs that are in relation to God's kingdom. If there's suffering in your life, whether the result of someone's sin against you, whether the result of disease or a virus like COVID-19, God invites us. He invites us to bring those wrongs before him and to speak honestly about them. 
Beloved, we need to see that see this not as a bad thing, but a right thing. If we pray against that in others' lives, why is it so bad for us to pray against it in our own? Going back to my original illustration, I remember feeling the hurt so intensely that it dawned on me that the hurt I felt as a result of that the hurt I felt was the result as a result of relational separation is not the way things were supposed to be. Before I would often pray that God would simply just remove my hurt, not realizing that the hurt I felt is a hurt that I can and should pray against. To be absolutely clear, it wasn't that I saw their actions against me as wrong. They did no sin, at least from my perspective, but I was seeing the hurt itself, the relational pain as a product of the fall that was wrong. That freed me to be able to name that and speak it to God with honesty. In doing so, God wasn't just a distant figure. He was someone whom I knew is near and cares about my pain and suffering because they are pains and suffering that ultimately war against him. In your prayers, can you name what is wrong and do it honestly? Have you? When we do, we are reminded of God's closeness in it all because it's not just pain and suffering that is against you. It's pain and suffering that is against God. So you are freed to pour out your heart in tears as you name this wrong and the suffering in your life. But like I said, seeking righteousness doesn't just mean naming the external wrongs. It It is also naming the internal wrongs. That brings us to our second idea. We can confess humbly. As David closes this psalm, he turns the spotlight inward and he says this in verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Again, this is an off-putting idea. I think we all understand this because we live in an age where we value our privacy. Passwords protect our accounts. VPNs protect protect us from others' investigation of our internet usage. Incognito mode conceals our browsing. You even had to use a password to get into the Zoom account, I think. Even from a relational standpoint, very few of us are willing to say to people, search me and know my heart. So why does David say this? He only says this because he rests in the one who already knows him. In fact, if you go back to verse 1, you'll see that David ends this psalm with the same words that he opens with. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Because God has searched and known David, David is able to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. And as he rests in God's intimate knowledge of him, despite the best and worst about him, he is freed to be honest about himself. He's free to say to God, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And just consider that. I think for a lot of us, when we think of confession, it can be a daunting task. It feels like we're admitting guilt before a judge who would judge us on the basis of that. And if God were that, then we would have every reason to be afraid. We would have every reason to keep our sins hidden. Moreover, when we do confess, I think we often tend to do so with a sense of qualification. We'll try to explain the situation a bit more in hopes that by giving more context, it might make our sin appear lighter than it really is or more understandable, perhaps even more excusable. I know I do when I speak about my sin, especially to others. And I hope what is abundantly clear is that the God who we confess to is a God who cares for us, who is intimate with us and loves us intimately. 
And what that means is simple, that I can confess without any qualification. As God reveals my sin, I can confess and name my wrongs plainly because there's nothing I could say that takes God aback. The more I confess, the more I bring myself into the light of God's glory. God is like a loving father who says to their son, no matter what happens, if you're ever in a trouble or in a bind, I want you to know that you can always come to me. Isn't that what the gospel is? That because of Jesus dying on the cross for us, there's never a time where our deepest sins, darkest sins will jeopardize our standing before him. What better way for us to rehearse the reality of that than to humbly confess? What better way to bring ourselves into the light as he is like to walk in the light and, and to be in his presence and to just be with him in the light as he is in the light? What better way than to ask God to reveal the sins in our hearts and to bring that before him? You are invited to humbly confess, not as a defendant turning in evidence before a judge, but as a child who is invited to turn to your parent whenever you're in trouble and are reassured that God does not think or deal with you any less than before. So do you want to draw closer to God? Do you want to be all the more reminded of God's fatherly love for you? Do you want to be all the more reassured, all the more of this, do you want to be reassured of, of this one truth? That death no longer has the last word, but that Jesus has the last word? Then learn to confess. Learn to confess honestly without any qualification. Obviously, there's so much more that can be said about prayer, but what I wanted to do was to give you a picture of what honest prayer looks like. I think oftentimes what makes prayer feel like a chore and our relationship with God distant is that lack of honesty. But I hope you're all the more encouraged to draw closer to God by way of honest prayer. I hope you're freed to know that you can draw near to God by way of honest prayer. It is the kind of prayer modeled for us in the Psalms, the kind of prayer modeled for us by Jesus himself. And for myself personally, the more I learned to pray this way, the more God began to change my own heart. As I think back to my original illustration, it was then, it was, it was when I began to pray in this way. I can pour myself honestly out to God that God slowly began to do his good work in my life. He slowly began to expose my sins and idols. But more than that, he began to grow my love for this couple. I'll call them Susan and Carl for now. It took time, but I eventually wrote to them. So I wanted to share with you what I eventually wrote to Susan and Carl, not to be a humble brag, but by way of testimony to God's goodness. On October 3rd, 2010, one year after they got together and when I begrudgingly gave my blessing, this is what I wrote. And I'll end with this. Hello, you two. How are you both doing? I wanted to take some time to email the both of you and just share a bit of what's been on my heart. So please forgive me if the email seems very out of the ordinary or if it even scared you or if my words are jumbled. Sometimes my Greek exegesis class makes me think strange. I wanted to humbly ask you both for your forgiveness because I suspect that I left you two both in the dark in terms of our friendship. I want you both to know that I'm so very thankful for our friendship and fellowship that is in Christ Jesus. I know ever since last year, things may have been a bit uncomfortable and I can imagine that for the both of you, even along with me, it may have been awkward to converse with me out of uncertainty. If that was the case for either of you and it has caused you to stumble in whatever way, please forgive me. That was never my intention. 
In fact, me writing this has helped affirm that within my own conscious and heart. But I just want to let you both know that I love you both very much. I cannot begin to express my thankfulness to our Savior that he saved all three of us and called us into light and fellowship with the Father. So with that said, I want to serve you both the best I can. I told both of you before, but you two have my support in every way possible. For Susan, because of the, of the privilege to be able to serve with her, especially as the Lord used her to sanctify many sisters, and for Carl, because of the privilege you've extended to me to speak at your church on multiple occasions, and affirming the desire for ministry and for being a brother who strives along with me in the pursuit of ministry. But more than that, I do just want to be your friend and brother in Christ. I want to put this very clearly on the table that I hold nothing against you both, but I have instead the most uh, utmost support for you both, rejoicing with you when you rejoice and weeping with you when you weep. I would understand if you both would just prefer otherwise, but I wanted to let you both know that I just want to be there for you guys as a fellow brother and hopefully clear up any haziness that exists between us. If you two are ever around the area, do come by and say hello. I could use a break from Greek and Hebrew exegesis. Back to work. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in Him. Signed, Matthew Powell. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can come before you and be honest. Thank you that we can come before you in intimacy and personally because you are intimate and personal with us. So, Father, I pray that this truth would simply Free us, Lord, to draw closer to you, to speak honestly about what weighs and burdens us on our hearts, even if we think it's the least important thing in the world. Oh God, we ask that you would help us to see that you have drawn closer to us by sending Christ to die on the cross for our sins. And so, Lord, I pray that we would draw all the more closer to you as a result. For his sake we pray. Amen.